Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen. It is good to see you all here. And if I may be so bold as to name one specific name, it's good to see Pastor Rick back amongst us. Pastor Rick has come back from Florida. I hope you're ready to get back to work. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, as everyone knows, we've been going through the Gospel of John now for, well, some 16, 17 months now. Kind of a little bit in depth. Not super in depth, could have been a lot deeper. But you know, it is good to be in the house of the Lord going through the Gospel of John yet again. Now today we are upon the crucifixion. I do not believe it is possible to be in a holier segment of Scripture, and I ain't exaggerating one little iota when I tell you I've been sweating and fretting this a little bit because of the holiness of this Scripture. And I've watched probably a few dozen YouTube sermons on the crucifixion. And uh, quite frankly, uh, it's, it's humbling. John MacArthur himself did three, almost three, almost completely full hours just on this exact passage of Scripture, back to back to back. Three different separate sermons. Well, I realized I was going to have to pare it down a little bit this morning, so I am not focusing on the crucifixion across the Gospels. I'm focusing on the crucifixion only as it is presented in the Gospel of John. Why? Well, as we started all this out, remember I said I wanted you all to feel comfortable with the Gospel of John in your pocket, sharing Jesus. And we're going to get you those Gospels of John, unless you pick one out yourself, and there's tons of them on, online you can find. But the Gospel of John, he, the Apostle John, he makes a beeline straight for Calvary. He makes a beeline for the cross in his presentation of the crucifixion. So there are a number of different elements in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are not in the Gospel of John, elements of the crucifixion. And as a result, I'm actually not addressing them this morning. I hope that doesn't disappoint you because there is still way more than I can handle here in a single sermon. So, you, know all, you all are very familiar with the cross, I am quite certain. The cross is the most familiar religious symbol in the entire world. The most obvious place for this symbol to be seen is on church buildings and inside and out. Jewelry crosses, tattoo crosses, all that, it's, it's all over the place. The Western world, the modern world, and I say modern, I don't mean just in the last hundred years. I mean in the last few hundred years, across Europe, the entire Western Hemisphere, the cross has been seen as a nice, a good, a religious symbol. But in the ancient Middle East, it was seen very, very differently. It was, like the song says, an emblem of shame. Only the worst criminals were put upon the cross. Only the worst. Murderers, insurrectionists, the worst of criminals. And yet, 
our sinless Savior found himself among the worst of criminals. Well, let us begin. You may read with me if you like. So he then handed him over to be crucified. Well, that's pretty short and simple. How much explanation can I give you on that one? I figure about 10 or 15 minutes, and then we get on to the rest of the verses. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Pontius Pilate, remember, tried everything he could to get out of getting Jesus crucified, but he was being blackmailed by the religious authorities in Jerusalem. They already had him over a barrel. He was already in a weak spot. His power connections in Rome were already under very negative scrutiny, if not already had been executed. We're not sure exactly of the timeline on that. So six different sham phases of a, of a trial, three religious before the Jews, which broke all the rules, didn't prove anything that Jesus had done anything wrong, and three secular trials before the Roman authorities, twice before Pilate, and between those two times before Herod. Well, Herod Antipas, by the way. It came back before Pilate. Six fake trials, all designed solely for the purpose of what the Jewish leadership wanted to do, which was to kill Jesus. They'd been trying to kill Jesus from the very beginning. Now, Pilate, after six times, declaring Jesus not guilty under Roman law, not guilty of anything, he finally caved because the Jews insisted Jesus said he's a king. And anyone who claims to be a king is against Caesar and cannot be a friend of Caesar. And if you acquit him, you're no friend of Caesar. So he acquitted him. And that is, even though he acquitted him six times, he caved and said, fine, we'll crucify him then if that's the way, if what you insist. Because... He was blackmailed. He really didn't have a choice. Next verse. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, carrying his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. Golgotha, the Hebrew word. Some say it's an Aramaic word. Uh, we know Calvary which comes from calvarium, that's the Latin word. Uh, basically, we don't even know exactly for sure where this was, but there is a place in Jerusalem uh, that looks like it could be the place. It looks like the, the head, the top of the mountain, or hill, if you will, looks like the top of my head. There's nothing on it except perhaps, uh, well, rock. <laughs> So we know that he is most likely in view of the place of the skull, Golgotha. He is not likely up on the hill because where the Romans did their crucifying was along the roadways. So he was probably within sight. Why did they do it along the roadways? Because they wanted everybody to see. Everyone who had come up against Rome, they wanted to see these people hanging from crosses. The Romans, outside of the Jewish territory, would actually leave the bodies on those crosses oftentimes to rot. 
to be picked by birds and eaten by scavengers. They would fall to the ground and, and be eaten by scavengers in other places outside of Israel. But in Israel, that was not allowed. You see, the Romans allowed the local government to have some ruling authority. They were vassals to Rome's suzerain authority. So it should be noted that uh, he was carrying his own cross. This cross, the cross beam, is called a patibulum. And it probably weighed, we're guesstimating, somewhere around 75 or 100 pounds. We don't really know for sure. There could have been a lot of variation in it. What we do know is that it's a rough-hewn, probably splinter-filled beam of wood. Now, Jesus has already been scourged, so he's already had the flesh ripped from his arms and shoulders and chest. He's been punched, his beard ripped, ripped out. He has been punched and slapped and ridiculed, and that's part of, the, part of the course, by the way, under this Roman punishment. Humiliation and pain and ridicule was part of it, and, uh, and people, the Roman soldiers around them, were very, very happy, very, very willing to play their role. In fact, for some soldiers in the Roman garrison, this was considered pretty good duty. You didn't have to work that hard compared to other work that you might have to do. Just You had to kill people, that's all. But as a benefit, as a little benefit, you got out of it the clothing of the people that you were killing. Well, the Roman soldiers oftentimes thought that that was pretty good duty. I was in the military. I understand the term good duty. I don't know I would see this as good duty, but apparently some of them did. So, <clears throat> the place of the skull, Golgotha, like I said, Calvarium in Latin, carrying his own cross. The distance he was carrying this, we call this the Via Dolorosa, by the way. This is a Spanish name. Doesn't that seem a little weird? A Spanish name, Via Dolorosa. Well, because a lot of the folks that are stationed there from Rome in this Roman garrison are Spanish. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor himself, was Spanish. Just in case you ever thought about that or wondered about that. So we figure, we don't know the exact route, but we're guesstimating, and a pretty good es estimation, it was somewhere between three quarters of a mile and a mile, where Jesus would be carrying this cross throughout the, the city on his way out of the city, because they would crucify outside the city. It was not only Jewish law, it was Roman law that executions were taken, were done outside the city. Or at least in some places it was Roman law. <clears throat> but indefinitely in Jewish law, it was outside the city. Well, before him would be someone who would, who would walk with a sign, probably a member of the four soldiers that were assigned. By the way, this detail was headed by a centurion. Centurion sounds like a hundred because it is a Roman soldier of seniority that has authority over a hundred soldiers. Well, he would be leading up this detail of four soldiers called a quaternium. And one of those soldiers, maybe two of them, would be carrying a banner ahead of the person who has the prisoner who is about to be executed with their charges on this placard, if you will. That placard, in Jesus' case, said, and we'll get to that, but it was nailed to the cross for everyone to see. For everyone to see. So, let's move to the next verse. 
They were there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Well, he said he was numbered among the thieves. He was numbered among the transgressors, excuse me. But that's in Isaiah 53, 12. First Peter 2.24, he said, He bore our sins in his body. Can you imagine how horrific that must have been? Can you imagine how horrific the sinless Son of God, who never knew sin, who hated sin passionately, God hated sin passionately. I'm going to get into that in a few minutes. Can you imagine how horrific it must have been to take on the sin of all who would believe in him? Not just some sin, but all the sin of every person who would ever put their trust in him. Past in the Old Testament, present in that time period, and future, you and I. Okay? Can you imagine how painful that was? Someone called me earlier this week and told me about a seminary professor that they had that was speaking about this and said, you know, did you know, do you realize that for God, creating the earth, child's play. Creating the universe, piece of cake. Walk in the park. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. I'm not sure he actually said that. But in this particular case, to take on sin himself, who knew no sin, who hated sin, was the only place in time where God genuinely strained under the effort. And that is to help you to understand the severity and the significance of this event, of how much it cost God the Father and God the Son to do this. Do you understand? Jesus, when he was sweating like great drops of blood in, in the garden at Gethsemane, the olive press. He was not doing that because of all of the beatings and all of that that was coming to him. It's nothing. It's nothing compared to the fact that the wrath of the Father, the righteous wrath of God against all sin was going to come upon him only after he bore the sins of the world in his very body. Can you think of anything Think of the most vile, disgusting, painful, wretched, horrible thing in which you could be bathed in and literally be dunked in a tub full of spiders and snakes and scorpions and human waste. That's all I can think of when I tried to put myself in this position. What can I think of? How horrible could it be? absolutely vile and disgusting and wretched. It's like being dunked in a tub full of vomit. Do you understand? Am I getting too nasty for you? It's not even reaching it. It's not even touching it. I can't even get anywhere near how horrendous this had to be for the Son of God. And that's what I want you to understand. What a great price. You know, I want to back up just a minute 
because I forgot a very important part as I got carried on there, carried away, if you will. You know, when Jesus was carrying the cross beam, his cross through the streets, the Romans made the prisoners do that because the idea behind it was by carrying this cross beam, it was a symbolic statement that you are being punished under the heavy authority of the Roman government. That's what it was symbolic of. Well, Matthew 16, 24 says, whoever wants to be, this is Jesus, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Take up their cross. You ever heard anybody say, well, my co-workers, they're my cross to bear. My baldness and fatness is my cross to bear. No. No. That's not what it's talking about. What is Jesus saying? He says you must take up, if you're going to follow him, you're going to be his disciple. You're going to learn of him. You're going to follow him. You're going to submit to his authority. You are going to take up your cross, your cross, your cross, not his cross, your cross, and follow him. What is it symbolic of? Just like for Jesus, this cross beam was a symbol of Roman authority under which he was being submitted. In reality, he was further beyond that submitting to the Father's will. Why? To purchase us back out of slavery to sin in the here and now and in the forever. The punishment of sin. Under the lordship of Jesus Christ, you realize you are under the king of kings? who also happens to be the most loving and benevolent leadership you can possibly imagine. If you are to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself. In other words, what do we mean deny ourselves? You must forsake your selfish, sinful desires that go against God's teachings in the Bible. The cross is an emblem of death to selfishness and death to the world and its ways that defy the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Savior. And listen to this. Because Jesus took our condemnation for us on the cross, the Bible says that we are no longer under condemnation who are in Christ. You understand that? We are no longer, if we are in Christ, we are no longer under condemnation. And he took that condemnation from God himself. The Father himself poured out his wrath on Jesus. God the Son was the recipient of God the Father's punishment so that everyone, everyone, everyone who places their faith and trust in Christ is justified. Justified. Just as if it never happened. Justified in Christ instead of being condemned like Jesus was. Isaiah 53 actually goes so far as to say that it pleased the Father to crush him. Stop and think about that for a minute. It pleased the Father to crush him. I want you to understand something. God did not get some sort of sick, sadistic pleasure out of causing all this pain and suffering for his son. Why did it please him? The end result. Redemption. Salvation. It was a very, very high price that both the Father and the Son, as well as the Holy Spirit, I don't want to leave him out of the picture here, 
He's always in the picture. They're always together. This great high price was done for one reason and one reason only, to deliver us from enslavement to sin and the penalty that comes with it. The wages of sin is death. There are no exceptions to that rule. We all die because sin came into the world. We all do. We all die. This body dies. All of us. There are no exceptions to the rule. I don't care if you're just six years old now or you're 99 years old now. Sooner or later, you're going to face it. You know it. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. The fact of the matter is that we all die for that very reason. But beyond that, there's not just physical death, there's spiritual death. Spiritual death is to spend eternity away from God, away from any relationship with Him, away from any fellowship with Him, away from any relationship or fellowship with any people who are in Christ. But also, because you refuse to take the penalty, before, because you refuse to accept that Jesus paid it all, you have no other option but to spend all of eternity because God is a righteous God. He's a just God. He must punish sin. He can't be a, right, a righteous and just God without punishing sin. He can't just let it go. He's a perfectly righteous, just God. But he didn't want you and I to suffer the penalty for this, so he gave us the option. He gave us a way out. And Jesus paid that price. Hallelujah. So, I'm sorry, I'm dragging on a bit. I'm going to pick it up. Verse 19. Now Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Wow. Both names, the lowliest name that he could have, the Nazarene, because remember, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was considered not a good place. It was looked down upon by all of Israel. So it was, it was not considered in high esteem. And yet, right next to that, the king of the Jews. You know, it's funny. Many Jews read that inscription. You know, an interesting irony, and uh, let's get on to the next verse so I can talk about it. Verse 20, therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Because where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Why? Well, what does that tell you? Observation. It's a very cosmopolitan place. It's an intersection of the world, so to speak. There are people that speak Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, obviously. There are also people who speak Aramaic, but not a, not a bunch of them. Hebrew is the, is the language of religion, of the Jewish religion. Latin is the language of Roman law and power. And Greek is the language of philosophy, culture, and commerce. In other words, the world. The world. So, it was there for the whole world, there in that area to see. It was clear and plain as day. Next verse. So the chief priests 
of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, rather write that he said, I am king of the Jews. Not that he's king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. That was, that was their charge. Their charge against him was blasphemy. That's why they wanted him killed. There's more reasons than that that they wanted him killed. There was envy. They didn't like the fact that so many people were leaving the synagogue and following him. They didn't like competition. You know, there's a whole bunch of reasons. There's a long list of reasons why they wanted him dead. Satan wanted him dead. And all of those who are under Satan's rule at this time, which is the world system, if you're part of the world system, if you think like the world, you feel like the world, and you don't see things the way God sees things, the way Scripture explains things, you're part of the world. And you are under Satan's control. Have you ever noticed how the news media and the entertainment media and social media as a general rule of thumb does not look favorably upon Christianity? Is it just me or am I just being paranoid? You know, they say, the old saying goes, I wouldn't be so paranoid if you all weren't after me. Or just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean you're not after me. Okay, dumb joke to put in there. But the fact is, that the world hates Christ and therefore hates everything that reflects Christ. If you reflect Christ in your life, the world, people of the world will hate you. They do hate you. Not that they will, they do, whether you realize it or not. Okay? So they said, don't, don't write that. In fact, if you, the original language, I am told, they were insistent. They kept saying it over and over and over. Don't write that. Don't write that. What does Pilate say? Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Something I think is a very interesting irony here. Here is Pilate who's already asked, what is truth? When Jesus said, everyone who loves the truth listens to me. And Pilate said, what is truth? And he didn't even stick around and listen for the answer. Pilate was very cynical. So here, here is an unbeliever, does not believe, does not even certain that there is any such thing as real truth. So he's arguing with the chief priests who also are not believers. Jesus said, you don't know me because you don't know the Father. You don't know me because you don't know the Father. That's why I think it's so and such an interesting irony that two factions, Pilate versus unbelieving religious leadership, and what happens? A public proclamation of truth, despite none of the fighting factions being willing to accept the truth. Now we can go into different reasons why I'm not going to do that, because I'm, I want you to know that this is God's sovereignty on public display for all of eternity in his word. Nobody there gave anything about the proclamation of Jesus being the king of the Jews. None of them that were in authority to make this decision, and still yet, in God's sovereignty, there it is for the whole world to see. 
You know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, the world system is rejecting you and you will have to accept being rejected by the world because a true follow, as a true follower of Christ, you will be hated just like Christ is hated. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13 says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. That's part of taking up your cross as well, bearing the reproach of the world, bearing the shame. James 4.4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Do you know that? When you're siding with the worldview and against the biblical view, you are performing an act of hostility against God. If the Bible says something is bad, and you say, no, I don't think that's right. That is an act of hostility against God. I'm not talking about some obscure thing. I'm talking about something crystal clear in Scripture by repetition. By every hermeneutical tool used to determine exactly what it says, what it means, and what it means to us. If, it sa- if the Bible says it's wrong, that it's bad, and you're not supposed to do it, and you tell yourself, I don't believe that, that's an act of hostility against God. Just so you know. I hope you don't think I'm pulling my punches too much here. Maybe I'm a little bit too fire and brimstone. I'll try to back it down a little bit. I heard a few people tell me that I'm a little more fire and brimstone than Ron used to be. (laughs) Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to each soldier, and the tunic also. But the tunic was seamless, woven, woven in one piece. Okay, I already told you about the quaternium, four soldiers that are part of the detail, plus the centurion who's overseeing and watching them do what they do. The interesting thing here, why, why is this seamless tunic mentioned? Why is John putting this in here? Well, I, I'm quickly running out of time, so I want to tell you. The only time a seamless garment is mentioned in the Old Testament is a garment worn by only one person, the high priest. The high priest. Jesus is our eternal high priest. I believe John knew exactly what he was doing when he put that in there. I can't see any other reason why he would put it in there, except maybe to mention that this was done the way it was done as Scripture would say, let us not tear it but cast lots for it. This happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled. So that Scripture would be fulfilled. In Psalm 22:18, it mentions that very exact thing. In fact, Psalm 22 is considered one of the most messianic psalms. If not the most messianic psalm. A lot of this is in in Isaiah 53. A lot of this is foretold 700 years in advance before crucifixion was ever even known to the Israelites. Or at least as far as I know was even known to the Israelites. It began in Persia and moved on to a different groups from there. But the Romans perfected crucifixion. 
They made it most effective. These prophecies are being fulfilled by people who don't know God, don't love God, don't have even the slightest clue that they are fulfilling ancient prophecy. More signs of the sovereignty of God. Proverbs 21.1 says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he channels it whichever way he will. God is sovereign. People can still be doing what they think is completely their own choices, their own decisions, and yet God is still, they're still responsible. We are still responsible for our own decisions. We're still accountable. We're not condemned, but we are still accountable. So, God's in charge. Notice how Jesus' focus is not on himself. Let's look at this. 24, so they said to one another, let's not tear it but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. I already talked about that, didn't I? Got ahead of myself on the scripture. Next verse, 25. Now beside the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. A lot of Marys. Mary is the New Testament version of Miriam. Moses was a very highly respected. He was the, the giver of the law. Miriam, right there beside him, very highly venerated Miriam. So Mary. So we have Mary. Okay. Uh, notice how Jesus' focus isn't on himself. All this time, and it's part of another gospel, and I'm just doing the gospel of John, but part of another gospel, the first thing he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The whole time on the cross, Jesus is not focusing on him. Woe is me. Any of that is focused. Here, last week I mentioned this passage as part of Mother's Day. And Jesus, his mother, notice that there are all women and one man here. What does that tell you? You know that historically, throughout the history of the church, that's usually the case. The faith of women, the faith of women has always, faithful women have almost, as far as I know, always outnumbered the men in worship, in, in worship organizations and institutions like this church here. As a general rule of thumb, any church I've ever been part of, the women outnumbered the men two or three or four to one been my experience that that's the case. It's no different here. Now Jesus, why is he doing this? Well, first and foremost, women are very vulnerable in that time. He is the eldest son. He has been taking care of his mother and these women. And he turns and he says, when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, Behold your son. Not saying, look at me. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his household. Jesus loves Mary and is making sure that he is taking care of her. He is also obeying the fifth commandment. Honor, honor your father and mother. 
And it was his responsibility to take care of her. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that you are worse than an infidel if as a man you do not take care of your household. Not that you are an infidel, that you are worse than an infidel if you are not taking care of your own family. Jesus is taking care of his own. And it says, and from that hour the disciple took her into, notice how household is slanted? Because that's added by the translators because that's how it works in English. You've got to put that subject there. Okay? But what it really says is, took her into his own. Into his own. She became his own. Was in his own arms, in his own love, in his own everything. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. I thirst. I thirst. Oh, goodness. I have got so much left. I did not time this well. So, I'm going to sum up now. I am going to close, honest. This time I really mean it. You can trust me, I'm not like the others. <sighs> the Old Testament system sacrificed animals because the Bible said that the remission of sins is not accomplished without the shedding of blood. Jesus instead of like all of these animals that were being sacrificed in the temple, Jesus became the once-for-all Lamb of God. Once for all. One final sacrifice. It's interesting that before this system, it is, I am told by, and I don't know that this is a fact, i got to double-check it, but I'm told that uh, in the garden, all, all we ate before sin entered the world was fruit and vegetables. I don't know, you'll have to check that out. It could be an interesting study. The crucifixion of Christ was the most evil act of mankind in all of human history. Yet God orchestrated it by his divine sovereignty to redeem millions or billions of sinners' souls for all of eternity. Listen to me, folks. God hates sin. He hates it. Jeremiah 44.4 says, Yet I sent to you all my servants, the prophets, again and again, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing which I hate. Habakkuk 1.13 says, speaking to God, Your eyes are too pure to look at evil, and you cannot look at harm favorably. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? What happened here? More righteous than they, the wicked... Yet, as evil and nasty as that was, God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty, he had a plan. Satan was getting what he thought he wanted. His minions, the evil, unbelieving people in God, were getting what they thought they wanted. Yet God was directing it. He was the maestro conducting this orchestra. Psalm 5, verse 4 through 6. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil can dwell with you. The boastful will not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do injustice. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord loathes the person of bloodshed and deceit. 
Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in what? Unrighteousness. Verse 5. Verse, um, chapter 2, verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the, re- of the righteous judgment of God. But we can't save ourselves. Job 15, 14 through 16 says, what is man that he would be pure? Or he who is born of a woman, that he would be righteous? Behold, he has no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, a person who drinks malice like water. From the New Living Translation, Romans 10, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. Do you know religious people of different religions who have all kinds of zeal? All kinds, they're They're pumped up. They're all in for whatever their religion is. But they don't understand, he says in verse 3. They don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. He's speaking of the Jews. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. All who believe in him are made right with God. In the Old Testament law, God set a system of sacrifices of these unflawed animals to make atonement. Leviticus 17.11 said, For the life of the body is in the blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. The Old Testament sacrifices were typical, or they were types. They were a foreshadowing of what was to come that pointed forward to something, or in this case, someone else. Romans 3.25 and 6 says, For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Are you hearing me? This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Folks, when Jesus came to this final point, read it with me if you will, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop, and brought it up to his mouth, probably to clear his throat. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Tetelestai. Paid in full. Paid in full. Jesus paid it all. All to him, we who are in Christ, who believe in him. All to him we owe. All to him we owe. What are you holding back? Are you holding back? Maybe you're not. I hope you're not. But when he said it is finished, he said that because he paid it all.
All you must do is recognize that you are his now. You are his. He purchased you. If you believe in Christ, you are his forever and ever. He holds you up with his righteous right hand, Scripture says, and no man can take you from his hand forever and ever. But you must trust Christ. You must put your faith and trust in him. Real faith and trust. Not believing just that he existed, but that he is your Lord and Master. That's how you, the way up is the way down, when you submit to God and resist the devil, he will flee from you. That's what Scripture says. Plain as day. So I wrap up. There's a story of a little boy who was lost, and he was found sitting on a curb by a police officer. The officer asked the little boy if he was lost, and the little boy said, yes. So the officer asked the boy where he lived, and the boy replied that he didn't know his address, so the officer started naming streets and stuff, and uh, the little boy didn't know any streets, so he began naming sh shops and stores and hotels and things like that. Well, any other point of reference that the little boy might know, and the little boy didn't know any of that. And then the officer thought for a second, do you know that church in the center of town with a really high steeple and has the cross up on top of it? The little boy says, yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. So the officer says, did you live anywhere near that? He said, kind of. The little boy's face lit up and he said, you know, if you'll take me to that cross, I can find my way home from there. Ladies and gentlemen, it is no different with you. If you will but first go to the cross, every day, go to the cross, you can find your way home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, for this message. I pray, Father, that you bring this message home, that you bring us home to our eternal home, and in the meantime, that you help us to remember to submit to you first, to carry our cross, and to know that you are the most benevolent, loving leader that we could ever submit ourselves to, all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere God. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.